Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 34. If I haven't met you, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the executive pastor here at Desert Springs. If you're visiting, uh, we're so grateful that you're here. Uh, We have been preaching through the book of Genesis uh, as a series together as a church. And has already been said this morning, we are in chapter 34, which um, is is a very difficult passage for us to turn our attention to. It could be tempting as you say that you're going to preach through Genesis or even read through Genesis on your own. It'd be tempting to, to really just skip chapter 34 altogether. In fact, uh, it would even make a good story if you did it that way. The end of chapter 33, the beginning of chapter 35, they, they almost fit together in a way. They end and begin with uh, God bringing Jacob, Israel, and his family safely through the promised land. At the end of 33, Jacob builds an altar. At the beginning of 35, he builds an altar. There's a lot of parallels, and so if you just skipped 34, you could say, wow, this isn't so bad. In fact, Jacob is looking pretty good. Not perfect, but, but things seem to be getting better and better for him as his story draws to a close. That's if you skip chapter 34. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. All scripture, including Genesis chapter 34. So that's why we as a church, when we commit to preaching through a book of the Bible, we, we say we're going to do the whole thing because we trust God. We want to hear the story that God is telling, not the story that we would tell if we were in charge. We're not in charge. You'll see that I titled this sermon, Dinah's Story, because that's what this chapter is. It's Dinah's story. It isn't a good story. In fact, it's tragic. But God wanted us to know it. God wanted to tell us Dinah's story because God saw Dinah. God knows what happened to her. And he wants us to know. So if we skipped Genesis 34, it would be like we were skipping Dinah. Like she wasn't important. It was just too much to deal with what she had going on. And if we skipped chapter 34, then it would would tell women and men in our church who have suffered like Dinah, that we'd rather just skip them too. That we don't see them. That we don't care. That we'd rather tell a different story for our church than their story. But God didn't skip them. God sees them. Just like he sees Dinah. And so we turn to a passage like Genesis 34 because we trust God and because God cares. And since God cares, we care. So let's let's read this. I'm going to read all of Genesis chapter 34. We'll also have the words up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. This is Genesis 34 beginning in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. 
He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised." Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is God's word. So we've got three points in our outline this morning. We'll begin with just verses one and two, an outrageous sin. If you're taking notes on your sheet, verses 1 and 2, an outrageous sin. If you back up to the end of chapter 33, verse 18 says, 
And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. So if you're with us last week, you remember Ryan said that this was a very questionable move by Jacob to pitch his tent here in Shechem. First of all, he lied to Esau last week about going with him to Seir. He, he went a different way. And then instead of going to Bethel like he should have, like he said that he was going to, he stops here in Shechem, which it says is a city of the Canaanites. So even just in what we've seen in Genesis so far, we know that the Canaanites were idol worshipers. And they were prone to wickedness, to violence, and especially to sexual sin. So when we hear that Jacob has settled next to one of their cities, just like Lot went and settled next to Sodom and Gomorrah, we should be very concerned. We should be very concerned at the end of chapter 33, and as chapter 34 begins, right away our concerns are realized. It says, verse 1, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob... Dinah is Jacob's only daughter. At least she's the only daughter that we know about. And it says that she's the daughter of Leah. So remember, Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. They were sisters, and Jacob loved Rachel. He favored Rachel. And because of that, God had had favor on Leah and gave her a whole bunch of kids. So in Genesis 29 and 30, we see that Jacob's first four sons are all born to Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And then later she has two more, Zebulun and Issachar. And at the end of Genesis 30, it tells us that when she was done having all of these boys, then she had a girl named Dinah. Verse 1, it says, Dinah went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Just on the surface, we see Shechem's sin here. It's obvious. But if you look very closely at the words that Moses, the author, is using, we see that he's really trying to stress for us just how bad this really is. Look at the verbs in verse 2. Shechem sees and then he seizes, or he takes. He sees and he takes. Those are the same verbs that are used in Genesis chapter three, when Eve sees the fruit and she takes it. These are the same verbs that are used of the fallen angels in Genesis chapter six, who, who see that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any that they choose. Time and time again, see and take is brought up in Genesis and it's meant to be a, a connection, a call back to that first sin, to the ur sin, the original sin in Genesis chapter three. So by using these words, what Moses is trying to say is Shechem's sin here. It's not just any sin in a fallen world. No, this is like that first sin. It's demonic in its influence. It's about overstepping the bounds that God has established. It's about thinking that you're a God yourself and doing whatever you want to do, whatever you think is right, reaching out and taking. And it's about the devastation that comes from such a sin. So Moses says that Shechem sees her, he takes her, and then he lays with her, which is clearly sexual, and then the text says that he humiliates her. That's a verb that's elsewhere translated to afflict or to bring low. 
can also mean to violate or to mistreat. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament very clearly to refer to rape. And in one word, it captures the emotional and physical pain, even the trauma of sexual abuse. And I'm pointing all of this out. I'm I'm showing you these words, the way that this is portrayed, because I want you to see that it was not only Moses who was the human author that used these words, but that God, the divine author, used these words to describe what happened to Dinah. We never hear from Dinah in this story. Dinah never speaks. We never get her perspective in her own words. But the fact that what happened to her is described this way, it tells us that God knows her story. She doesn't have to say anything. And it tells us what God thinks about what happened to her. He hates it. He hates it. So let me be very, very clear on this point. The Bible is unequivocal. Sexual assault, sexual abuse, rape, it's evil. Yes, it's in the Bible because the Bible is a true story and sadly these things happen in a fallen world. But every time it's in the Bible, God hates it. We're going to get to the response of Dinah's brother, brothers in a little bit, but, but if you look at verse seven, it's surprising that her brothers actually demonstrate a lot of moral clarity on this point about this sin. In verse seven it says, the men, that is her brothers, were indignant and very angry because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel. It's outrageous. It's disgraceful. It's senseless. He'd done an outrageous thing by lying with Jacob's daughter. And then look at this, for such a thing must not be done. It's not immediately clear if that's expressing what her brothers were saying. This should not have been done. Or if that's what Moses, the author, is inserting there. It's kind of a narrative point. This should not have been done. Either way, it's unambiguous. The Bible is absolutely clear. That should not have been done. And I, and I know many of you in this room have told me personally that you have been the victim of sexual abuse. And not just women, men too. And for all of you who have told me, I know there are probably many, many more who have not told me personally. Maybe you haven't told anyone. Let me say to all of you, that should not have been done. That was evil. That was wrong. And I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm so sad that that happened to you. It should not have happened. And, and more than just me being sad, know that God hates that that happened to you. He doesn't overlook it. 
He doesn't minimize it. He certainly does not blame you and you should not feel ashamed. God sees you. He knows you. And what happens to you makes him very angry. And he is going to do something about it. He will. He has. And that's where we're headed. We're going to get there in, in just a minute. But let me say, if, if something like what happened to Dinah has happened to you or is happening to you, I want to encourage you to not keep your story to yourself. God already knows. God already knows, again, and there's no shame there for you in that. God doesn't love you any differently. He doesn't love you any less completely because of what happened. So God already knows, and you can take it to him in prayer. You can talk to God about this, but more than that, you can talk to someone else. You can talk to someone else here. You can come talk to me. You can come talk to one of our pastors. You can talk to one of our counselors. You can talk to a friend here, a brother or a sister in the church. But I want to encourage you, when you're ready, don't keep it to yourself. God has given the church to one another so that we can care for one another, that we can carry one another's burdens, that we can mourn with those who mourn. If this is your story, this is our story too. Your story is our story because we're a family and so let us carry this burden with you. And if you need help, God has given pastors and the church, shepherds in the church especially to care for you and to help you. So if you have been abused, if, if you are right now being abused, if someone in your life who has who has some kind of power over you, some kind of authority over you, if they are controlling you, getting from you, taking from you things that you are not voluntarily giving to them, if somebody is hurting you, even if you are not quite sure, come talk to us. We want to help you. Do you hear that? I want to help you. So please, please come talk to us. Because we see you, or at least we want to see you, because God sees you, and God cares, just like he saw Dinah, just like he cares for Dinah. So look, there's, there's more I can say. I would be happy to talk to any of you more, but, but let's keep going in this narrative. Let's go to the second point, verses 3 through 12, a shameless proposal. So, so the description of what happens to Dinah is very short. It's only two verses, but it obviously dominates everything that happens after this chapter. And that begins here in verse three with Shechem's response. So in verse three, it says, now Shechem's soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So, so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. I don't even know what to do with Shechem here. And there aren't many details given, but this, this guy is clearly very confused. I do think it's worth pointing out that this is actually a very common pattern in situations of abuse. It's for someone to act out in these extreme acts of 
violence and domination and control that are totally rooted in selfishness and then just to turn on a dime to these extreme expressions of tenderness and affection and generosity. That's a pattern. Even that tenderness, even that affection, it's not done in love. I don't think whatever Shechem is feeling here, I don't think it's love, at least not love in the Christian sense. This is passion. This is eros. And that can be just as manipulative as force sometimes. But our definition of love comes from Christ himself. Love doesn't take without asking. Love doesn't make demands. Love is not self-seeking. Love does not see others as just a means to your own ends. So for all of Shechem's whatever, this isn't love. But we should step back here and we should see a bigger issue at play and how Shechem and his family are going about this. It's obvious as this unfolds that they don't think they've done anything wrong. Do you see that? They never apologize. They never act like what they did shouldn't have happened. No, they're just acting like Canaanites. This is just how it works for them. Women are an object to be exploited. They're to be used. And if you want to marry one, by all means, it's your right. Go for it. They're just acting like Canaanites. And so he thinks he's entitled to taking Dinah as a wife. And so he and Hamor go to Jacob with this proposal. Now in verse 5, this is where it shifts to Jacob. Verse 5, it says, Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. He held his peace. He didn't say anything. That is unbelievable to me. He knows what happens and he, he does nothing. So in a, in a whole passage with a lot of sin, I, I think Jacob's passivity might be the most glaring in this whole thing. It was Jacob's fault that they settled in Shechem in the first place. I don't know why he made that decision, but he wasn't thinking about his family when he did it. And then clearly he did nothing to try and keep his daughter safe when they're in enemy territory. And then he doesn't intervene here when he finds out what happened. So, so Jacob is just like another Adam in the garden, just sitting back while he watches tragedy unfold for his family. Does nothing. And so even when his sons do come in verse 6, verse 7, it's not Jacob who talks. It's them who's talking. It's them who are expressing the moral outrage about what's happened. And I have to wonder if, if Jacob would have responded this way if Dinah had been Rachel's daughter or if this had been Joseph. But it might add a little bit of context to remember that Jacob's tribe is still very small at this point. And Jacob is old. He's like 100, literally. And remember last week, he, uh, he had been handicapped physically. So he limped for the rest of his life. So Jacob knows that if it actually came to blows, they wouldn't be able to put up a fight. So if you skip down to verse 30 at the end of the chapter, I think, I think we see what Jacob's real priorities are there in verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So what's his priority there? 
His daughter has just been raped. And all he can think about is self-preservation. He's afraid. Do you see that? He's afraid. And sadly, his response to injustice, it's just all too common in our world today. To know that something horrible is happening and yet hold your peace. To not speak up, to not intervene, to not, to not do something. Because you fear what might happen if you do. Friends, let me say that that kind of fear, it just belies a complete lack of trust in God. How many times do we have to see God fighting our battles for us before we realize that we can trust him with the outcome of our obedience? Remember what Israel means. God fights for us. God fights for us. In fact, Jacob's foolishness is proven in the very next chapter. If you look down at 35 verse 5, It says, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Jacob's worried about taking the wrong steps in response to this really sensitive situation because he's worried that they might attack them. He forgot what God promised to Abraham. I'm your shield. Just do what's right. Trust me. I'll protect you. I'll fight for you. I will keep you safe. It's not up to you to scheme out and try and figure out how you're going to navigate this one. Just do what's right. Seek justice. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Obey God. Fear not. And this hits really close to home this week. I hope most of you have better things to do than to keep up with the goings-on of the Southern Baptist Convention. But this week we saw the release of a a third-party investigation into patterns of sexual abuse and cover-up by leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention. Many of you have asked me about this because our church is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for crying out loud. And I'm happy again to talk more about this with those of you that have questions, but what I want you to know is that this report that just came out, last summer, Pastor Ryan and I voted at the convention for that report to happen. As representatives of this church, we joined with this tremendous outcry of other SBC churches asking for justice for the abused, asking that people not get away. We spoke up a year ago And we're seeing the fruit of that this week. It's heartbreaking. But we should take heart that this is is what justice being done looks like. It's not being swept away. It's not being covered up. Pastor Ryan and Pastor Drew are going to go uh, in just a few weeks to Anaheim to this year's convention. And I know they're just going to keep on shouting loudly for justice. And if we don't see justice in the Southern Baptist Convention then the elders will have a conversation about what our partnership with the SBC looks like. And I'm sure that that will not be a hard conversation if justice is not done. But I just want to take the opportunity now in God's providence, this is the text that we're preaching right after this happens. So let me be on the record as far as what happens 
and what has been happening, a pattern of what has been happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. This is an outrageous thing in Israel. Such a thing must not be done. And the men involved in this, the men who are guilty of abuse, they stand under God's judgment. This is sin. This is evil. And the men involved in the cover-up of this are cowards. They're cowards just like Jacob in our text. That's what he is. He's a coward. He just wants to save his own skin to ensure his prosperity. He would rather do that than seek justice for his own daughter. This cannot happen in our church. This cannot happen at Desert Springs. Do you hear that? I promise you that I will do everything in my power, the elders will do everything in our power to make sure that this never happens in our church. Let's just keep going. Verse six. So Shechem and Hamor, they go to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons come, they start talking. Verse eight, uh, Hamor says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. So again, they don't apologize. They just want to get Shechem what he wants. Verse 9, uh, Hamor starts treating this more like a, um, a political arrangement or even like a business deal almost. So he says, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. And then Shechem also said to her and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So this is where Simeon and Levi get that charge that Shechem has treated their sister like a prostitute. He has used her sexually and now he thinks that just paying for it will make it all okay. And I think it's that right there. That's the last straw for Jacob's son. So this is where we get our third point, verses 13 to 31, a vengeful response. So verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So that's a little clue that Moses is giving to us so that we know everything that follows from this point on is an elaborate deception. So now Jacob's sons are the deceivers. In verse 14, they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. In verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son, Shechem. I think we can assume that these words also pleased Jacob because he doesn't object. And I think Jacob is being deceived here as well. So do you see what that means? Jacob is okay with his family intermarrying with Canaanites, becoming one people with Canaanites, with Canaanites that act like this. Not only is that just despicable, but it throws the whole Abrahamic covenant into jeopardy. So thankfully, that wasn't the real plan. It was deception, but, but the real plan isn't any better. So the sons of Jacob said to Shechem, 
you need to be circumcised. We're not going to do this until you're circumcised. In verses 19 to 24, we won't read it, but Shechem and Hamor go back to their people and they tell them the plan. And we see as they're explaining things to them that they were being kind of deceitful too, weren't they? So when they were talking to Jacob and his sons, it was all like mutual, you know, like, hey, this will be great and we'll do this and we'll all live together and it'll be awesome. And then they go back to their, their own people and they talk in the gate and they say, we're going to get these guys. Look at all of their stuff. Let's just do this and then it will all be ours. So they're being just as deceitful. But apparently that was all it took was Shechem to say, look at all their stuff. We're going to get it. You guys want to do this? And then the whole city agrees to go and get circumcised. All the grown men in that city. So you got to be pretty greedy to think that that's a good idea. So if you remember, circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham in chapter 17. And it was meant to be a, a, a visible sign, not just of your ethnic identity, okay? So not that the, just these were descendants of Israel, but it was meant to be an outward expression of a spiritual reality, that this community had faith in Abraham's God and in the promises that God had made to Abraham and his offspring. And so for Jacob's sons to misuse this symbol this way, I think it was Jim Hamilton who said that this would be kind of like tricking someone into getting baptized so that you could drown them. But think about that. It's the complete opposite of, God, of what God wanted this to represent. This promise that God had made to Abraham that they were gonna be a blessing to the nations. God's sons are using this symbol that was meant to symbolize a blessing. They're, they're using it as a means of cursing the nations of condemning and judging the nations. It says on verse 25, on the third day, when the men were sore, sore because circumcision was like a minor surgery, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, they took their swords and they came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And then the sons of Jacob, so this is probably all the brothers now, came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. So it just gets worse, this chapter does. I mean, this is truly horrifying what happened here. But can I be honest with you for a minute? As I was preparing this sermon this week, honestly, this has been the hardest, most emotional sermon I have ever prepared in my entire life. I'm pretty sure I cried every single day this week. And sitting in it this long, I'm having a hard time not sympathizing with Simeon and Levi a little bit. I mean... This, this just makes me so angry. What happened to Dinah? What I know has happened to many of you and then all the stuff with the SBC and I get it. And I think even the text is at least a little sympathetic to Simeon and Levi here. Of all of these people that look bad, they don't look quite as bad. Remember, it's the sons of Jacob in verse 7 that expressed the right outrage about what happened. This should not have been done. It's outrageous. And then as the chapter is 
structured, Moses gives Simeon and Levi the last word. They get to ask the last question. Verse 31, they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And then the chapter's over. So that gives us a little bit of a clue about how we should think about the rest of it. What's the answer to that? Obviously, no. So it's just underlining what happened to Dinah. It was an outrageous sin. But what Simeon and Levi did was outrageous too. It's a little sympathetic to them, like I said, but, but really in the end, their, their sin is, is just as outrageous and just as obvious. So nobody, none of the men in this story come away looking good. But someone might ask, wait, wait, why is their sin outrageous? Why is this sin at all? Actually, isn't this justice? Isn't this justice? No. This is Vengeance. This is revenge. And it is wildly disproportionate. That's why this is so unjust. One of the bedrock principles of justice in the Old Testament is the principle of eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Life for a life. That's how Exodus puts it. It's this principle that the punishment must fit the crime. And this does not what they did. This does not fit the crime. This is unjust. And so then the right question is, okay, well then what is a proportionate response to sexual abuse? What is the proportionate eye for an eye response to rape? And this may surprise you, but the Bible actually says it's the death penalty. Deuteronomy chapter 22, we won't turn there, but it has a whole section about laws for how Israel was supposed to respond to situations of rape, and the punishment was death. That's eye for an eye. And I think that that shows that God understands the lifetime of trauma and devastation that comes from sexual assault. That he would say, you know what's just, you know what's proportionate? For the man that committed this crime to die. I think that might be a good law today. I don't know. But what's not justice is what Simeon and Levi do. What they do is not eye for an eye. It's bloodthirsty. It's a war crime. It's vengeance. Because not only do they kill Shechem without any kind of due process, which is also a biblical principle, they kill Shechem, but then they hold his dad accountable for the sin of his son, and then they kill everybody that ever knew Shechem in the whole village. I mean, that is just outrageous. And then to add all of that, after Simeon and Levi have gone and killed all the men, then all of the brothers come in and they take all of the stuff and all of the children and all of the wives to be slaves in Israel. It is too far. Horrific what they did. So the first readers who would have been familiar with the rest of the Mosaic law, they would have known what the laws of Israel were and they would have been reading this story and they would have been just as ashamed and just as outraged as we are. They would have seen all of this and say, that's not justice, that's not God's law. But even the book of Genesis itself, it tells us very clearly that what Simeon and Levi did was wrong. It's not here in this text, but at the end, Genesis chapter 49. This is a chapter where Jacob, the elderly Jacob, as he's kind of putting these prophetic prophetic pronouncements onto his sons, most of his sons get blessings, but not Simeon and Levi. Genesis 49, verses 5 and 7. 
Jacob says this. This is his prophetic pronouncement over Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So at the end of the book, Simeon and Levi are held accountable for what they did here in chapter 34. They are cursed. They are cursed because it was violent and it was wrong. Interestingly, we're going to get there when we get to chapter 49, but that's a long way away. Uh, Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, also gets cursed for something that uh, we'll see next week. So if you're keeping score at home, that means the first three of Jacob's sons are all cursed. They all lose the right of the firstborn. So who does that leave? Judah. Judah's next. Judah's the firstborn now. Judah's the one that gets the blessing, and that's a blessing for us. Because if you don't know, it's the tribe of Judah, the Jews, out of which comes our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he's our only hope in a world where stuff like Genesis 34 happens. Genesis 34 is an extreme example of just how broken the world is. Just how fallen this world is. And we read Genesis 34 and we read the news today and we know that this kind of evil isn't just limited to biblical times. We know that we're not any better than these people thousands of years ago just because we live later in history. This is still the world we live in and some of you know that all too well. But what's important for us to consider here is not just that the effects of sin and evil are somewhere out there in the world or something that acts on us, but we read Genesis 34 and we see that we are part of this fallen world as well. What we need to do is read Genesis 34 and kind of Romans 2 ourselves. You remember Romans 2? Romans chapter 1, at least at the end of it, the Apostle Paul starts um, heaping up guilt and judgment on, on all of those people out there, the bad guys that don't believe God and they do all this sinful stuff. And, and what he does is he kind of brings the audience along with him so that we're looking at them and like, yeah, they are really bad. And then he comes in Romans 2 and he says to us, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So Genesis 34 presents us with these really extreme examples of wickedness. And we should see them and be appalled by them. And then we should be quick to be appalled when we see that in our own hearts. Because it's there, right? Not the same way, but Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he says that if anyone looks lustfully at someone else, that's to commit sexual immorality with them in your heart to look lustfully, to engage in sexual fantasies about someone else in your mind or to use pornography. You are seeing and you are taking and you are humiliating in your mind without their consent. Now, I'm not saying it's of the same degree as what Shechem did, but we're not so different from Shechem. Nor are we different from Jacob. Which one of us hasn't been afraid 
and let fear lead us to sin against someone else? Which one of us hasn't been afraid and failed to do what is right? To say what needed to be said because we're worried about what would happen if we did. And who among us hasn't gotten angry like Levi or Simeon? Who hasn't wanted to take vengeance? Who hasn't forgotten what we read in Romans 12, what Luke read for us, that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. Jesus, again in the Sermon on the Mount, that he says that anger in our hearts towards someone else is really no different than murder. The same sin that led Levi and Simeon to massacre a whole village, that's the same sin at at work in your heart when you blow up at your spouse or your coworker or the guy that cut you off in traffic. Our sin may not be as overt, it may not be as extreme, it may not have the same dire consequences as those in this Story, and we should thank God for that, okay, but it's no less abhorrent to God. We read this passage and we want justice, but where does it stop? Do you just want justice for the really bad guys? Or do you want all of it? Justice for the whole world. Because all sin, no matter how big, no matter how small, it's all outrageous to God and that includes your sin all of our sin makes God our enemy and God is just to repay God's wrath is right and so all of us for these sins in our heart can't we all see that we're not so far off from these people all of us stand rightly under God's wrath But God also teaches us to love our enemies. We saw that in Romans chapter 12 too. God teaches us to love our enemies and he's not teaching us to do something that he hasn't done for us first. Because the first time Jesus came, it wasn't with a sword. The first time Jesus came, it wasn't in vengeance It wasn't to judge. Jesus didn't come the first time to judge the world. He came to be judged by the world. Do you see how crazy this is? Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Jesus Christ came to save people as bad as Shechem. Jesus Christ came to save people as bad as Levi and Simeon. Jesus Christ came to save sinners like me. And you, Jesus came down from heaven into our Genesis 34 world and he took on flesh and he never sinned. The whole time he lived on this earth as a man, he never even had that stuff going on in his heart. He was perfect and he became like Dinah one who suffers, one who is afflicted. He wasn't afflicted sexually, but his humiliation on the cross was such that he is more than able to sympathize with anyone who has been afflicted in this life. Jesus suffered like Dinah, 
But more than that, he became like Shechem, one condemned to die. Not for anything that he had done. He had never sinned. But, but all of that sin that we had committed and the wrath that we deserved, Jesus took that on to himself. Just like Shechem deserved the death penalty, friend, we all deserve the death penalty. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. That's what your outrageous sin deserves from a holy God. Death. But... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus took all of your sin, all of your guilt. He took the death penalty on your behalf. He died on the cross as a substitute so that everyone who would see Genesis 34 in themselves and confess that, yes, my sin, my sin is that bad that it deserves death. And then we see the Son of God lifted up, dying on the cross in our place, Confessing our sins and pleading that sacrifice for our forgiveness. You will be saved. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward, his own son, as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you have faith in Jesus? If you do, then for all of your heinous, outrageous sin, you are forgiven. There is no condemnation for you Because God justly poured out his wrath on his own son. But if you don't have faith in Jesus, if you have not believed in Jesus, and you are here in this room, I beg you, today is the day of salvation. Today you can believe and be forgiven of all of your sins. And if you won't, Like I said, Jesus came once. He came once to die on the cross and put away our sins. And not only did he die, but he was raised from the dead. He ascended back to the Father. And he is coming again. And this time he's bringing that sword. Actually, it's coming out of his mouth. He is coming in judgment. Simeon and Levi were bad judges. They were disproportionate. They were unjust but when Jesus comes he will judge the world in righteousness he will and that's really bad news if you haven't believed but again this is free this is a free gift and you will be spared that judgment it's really bad news for those who haven't believed but this idea This idea that Jesus is coming again to judge. And that his judgment will be perfect and righteous. That's really good news for us who have believed. It's good news for us, one, because we know, again, we're spared that judgment. Actually, when Jesus comes to judge the world, we'll be behind him, cheering him on. But those before him, 
who have not repented of their sin, who have not confessed their sin, who have not obeyed the gospel. They will die. They will experience justice. And so will we. And so this is really good news if you're here and you've been hurt. If you are here and someone has committed evil against you, though we wish, even in, in Christ, right, that, that more than eye for an eye, we would wish that they would repent too and be forgiven and be saved. We're gonna glorify God for that in the new heavens and the new earth. But if they never repent, if they never see that what they did was wrong, if they never think it was outrageous, if they, for the rest of their days, think this is just the way it is, they're never sorry, then what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1 will be true of them. And so we'll close with this. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Let's pray. God, these are not truths that we would have woken up this morning and probably turned to ourselves if we were deciding what word we wanted to consider this morning. But I, God, we trust that every, every part of your Bible is inspired and it's helpful. It's profitable for us. And, and so, Lord, I, I pray that this word this morning was profitable for all of us maybe for some specifically that they would they would hear how seriously you take sin and they would repent and believe the gospel that they can be forgiven that they can be with you forever that that they can be saved rescued from your wrath and God for all of us let us be encouraged by these words to wait to wait for your justice to not try and take it ourselves to not take vengeance before your time Help us to be encouraged that you will come, you will make everything right. Until then, we can take our hurts to you and to one another. Keep us until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.